Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, looking at verse 19. I just want to say this is perhaps one of my favorite passages out of the book of Hebrews. Have I said that before? <laughs> I might have said that before. I guess the week I'm preaching, that's my favorite passage. But I, I, have, uh, I have studied this text before, shared this text before. This is one of my um, texts that formed one of my early sermons. And it, it is so encouraging and challenging. Um, in Hebrews chapter 10, we learned last week about guilty consciences. And what was God's method for dealing with guilty consciences? And, and our tendency is to have some kind of personal sacrifice. If we, can, if we can just sacrifice something, then maybe this will calm my heart, my conscience, and, and satisfy, and maybe I can look with bold face before God and before others if I, if I have some personal sacrifice. And, and we looked at the Old Testament system, how it provided for that. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, we, we learn that those personal sacrifices are but shadows that point to Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, you have the reality. And that not only do you have the reality, this reality replaces the shadow. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, the gospel, replaces personal sacrifices. And it cleanses our conscience. It cleanses our conscience by a one-time sacrifice, single sacrifice, that was for all time. All time. I, I, I cannot add to it anymore. I, I can't by coming here and, and sacrifice by listening to this guy preach, thinking, okay, if I can listen to this guy preach enough times, maybe that's enough chastisement, you know, and, and, and it'll uh, undo the bad that I've done before God and, and I can have a clean conscience. Or maybe by joining the choir or giving. And, and, and that doesn't work that way. There's a one-time sacrifice. And I, I, I'm telling you, if, if believers today can... Master Hebrews 10, verse 1 through 18. It will just put away such superstitious thoughts that we have in regards to religion and coming to church. One of the thoughts that comes out of Hebrews chapter 10 as well as Hebrews chapter 8 is that there are no longer any holy places. There are no longer any holy buildings. There are no longer any holy clothing. There are holy people. Holy people that are, as Chris has sung, belonging to God. I struggled with that this week and, and even ever through the night. I was thinking, really, is there no such thing as holy places anymore? What about Israel? What about Jerusalem? Are those no longer holy lands, holy places? I'll share a scripture with you that I think speaks to that uh, in just a little bit. And so, what does it mean that... The gospel, the Jesus Christ on the cross, his death for us, cleanses us from our, our guilty consciences. What does that mean? There are, uh, in this text, three very specific lifestyles that come from our actions, choices that come from this. And so, that's what we're going to look at. I hope we can finish it, but I kind of hope we don't because I wouldn't mind doing two weeks of this. Uh, so, Hebrews chapter 10 um, verse 19, and we're going to read through verse 31. So, in honor of this passage, let's stand as we read Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence 
to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest of the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You may be seated. What's important to note is found in verses 19 through 21, what we have. When Jesus died on the cross, what did it grant us? Well, verse 19, you see that word therefore. What you remember, anytime you see a therefore, you need to figure out what's it there for. It's about to give us some actions that are based on some doctrine, some truth that is prior to this. What do we have before this? Well, verse 18, we've got forgiveness of sins. There's no longer any offering for sins. I, I am no, no longer trying to solve my conscience and try to uh, uh, give absolution to the things that I've done by, by doing some actions. It's no longer necessary. It's, it's done. It's already done by Jesus Christ. There's no, there are no more things that I do. Jesus has done it all. There is forgiveness now. Verse 17, God will remember my sins and lawless deeds no more. Verse 16, because God's put the law of God in my heart, written them on my mind, the Holy Spirit is changing me because of the gospel. Verse 14, because one by one single offering, He's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That means that before God, I am clean. My conscience is clean before Him because of Jesus Christ. And therefore, it is having an effect in my life. It's changing who I am. Because I have all these things, in verse 12, Christ, by single sacrifice for sin, sat down at the right, of God, right hand of God. There's no more work to be done. Because of all these things, verse 19, I now, when in coming to the, the throne room of God, when I approach the very presence of God's dwelling place, I can do so with confidence. Let me just give a little clarity here. This, this presence of God here that's just being mentioned here, verse, verse 19, the holy places. Uh, it was referring to the, the presence of God. The holy places. This is the same type of the place that we see in the book of Exodus, uh, in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, where uh, God's presence was on Mount Sinai, and he roped off the mountain and said, don't come near it, don't touch it, or you'll die. And now it says in Hebrews, you can, you can go up to that mountain and you can do so with confidence. You can be in the presence of God. You can draw near to Him. 
Now, what does that mean, uh, draw near? Let me just share with you. First of all, I'm not talking about coming to church. All right? Sometimes we think, well, I'm going to draw near to God. It means I'm going to come to church and I'm, going to, and I'm going to worship God there. What did I tell you? There are no holy places anymore. There are no holy places anymore. I, or you could say it this way. Every place is a holy place if God's people is there. That's the other way you can look at it. All right? Um, so what does it mean drawing near to God? It means that you in your mind, in your heart, can direct your thoughts to Him and He hears you. He hears you. Do you understand that before you trust in Jesus Christ, you have no hope whatsoever that any thought directed to God is being listened to by God? That means your child could be dying and you could be praying and seeking and asking, God, please help this child. Please help this child. And if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, for a clean conscience, God isn't hearing your prayer, no matter how sincere you are. That seems kind of cruel. It, your relationship with God is totally based on your sin being cleansed by God. You, you are living in a self-righteous time. You are self-oriented. You're living for all of yourself. And so even as your child is crying and, and, and you're thinking, God, stop, heal him, heal him, heal him. It's, it's totally based in living for yourself and as you continue in that way and rebelling against God, God will not hear your prayer. Now that's, that's shocking. Okay? But that is how God regards sin. That until someone pays the penalty for your sin, God doesn't hear your prayer. So somebody's going to die. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 1. God says, if you will sin, you will die. Someone's got to die for the sin of your life. And so here's the thing in the, in the cross. You died in, when Christ died. And Christ lived a life you couldn't live so he could die a death that you should have died. So when I trust in Christ, I can pray and God hears my prayer. Because the sin that kept a barrier between him and I now is being taken care of. So it is directing my heart toward him, is directing my mind toward him, uh, and, and knowing that as I pray, God hears me, and I do it with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And then he goes on and says, With a heart sprinkled clean with an evil conscience, or from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, this is all based on the fact that verse 19 and 20, Jesus is, is providing a new way that he opened us through the curtain. What's he talking about, a curtain? All right, if you know Exodus, you know what he's talking about. In the curtain, in that tabernacle, that God's dwelling place, that was a holy place in the Old Testament, there was a veil, a curtain that separated the holy place where the ark was put, the Ten Commandments, the gold box that represented the presence of God, the most holy place that veil separated from the holy place, okay? And so it represented a barrier. In the Old Testament, you see barriers between you and God. But what you have here is that allusion to that Old Testament tabernacle that Jesus comes in, and by the tearing of his flesh, by uh, being placed upon the cross, it represented the tearing of that curtain. You remember in the, Old, in the New Testament, the Gospels, when Jesus died on the cross, the earth shook, everything went dark. And you remember 
The Bible says in the book of Matthew that it, the veil was torn from the top to the bottom. Why? Because God was making it clear that there was an access, there was a way to get to God. You can now talk to him through his flesh. And so we have this way, verse 21, we have a high, great high priest over the house of God. He's talked about that already in the book of Hebrews. We've got this, therefore, you know what? I can go into a holy place and I can talk to God where once I could have been just fearful for my life and I have a high priest there representing me, a pathway made for me by the blood of Jesus Christ and I can pray and I can talk to him. Think about a wedding ceremony, a book of May, uh, month of May, month of June. How many of you have anniversaries in May or June? Raise your hand. This is, this is the marrying time, evidently. You know, May and June. Um, and so our, our anniversary was in May, uh, May 24th, in our 13th year. And I, I think back in, in that wedding day, there was a commitment made to one another. And what it implied was from that point on, there would be a drawing near. A drawing near. What you have is Jesus on the cross is a new covenant made. And what is implied is that you'll draw near. Why did Jesus why did Jesus die on the cross? All kinds of reasons. God, it was the pleasure of God, it was the holiness of God. But listen, what this is telling us is that one of the major consequences, one of the major intended actions of Jesus dying on the cross is that we would draw near to God. Now what does that mean to draw near? Well, is to have your heart and mind rejoicing in Christ. It is to orient yourself toward Christ. It, yes, you can draw near to God in a time like this, but you can also not draw near to God in a time like this. What's the difference between someone sitting here and drawing near to Christ and someone who is not drawing near to Christ? They're drawing near to lunchtime. All right? Or they're drawing near to... Uh, softball game or soccer game or whatever the next thing. On, what, what's the difference? You're both sitting here. You're both listening to the same thing. What's the difference? Isn't it what your mind is doing and what your heart is directed toward? And the same way you may or may not be drawing near here is how you do it the rest of your day. Now, there are some activities... Some things that you can pursue that makes it harder for you to draw near to Christ. Those are the things to avoid. There are some activities, some things that you can partake in that warms your heart to Christ and helps you think on Christ. Those are the things you want to fill your life with. Now, it can be different for different people. Some, some people will have certain music. Some folks will listen to Southern Gospel and their heart will just draw to Christ. Some folks, when they listen to Southern Gospel, it just doesn't do a thing. You know, it makes you think, oh, you know, I just want to cut that off, you know. Um, it's just, it's, people are different. Some folks may be able to watch something on TV that draws their heart to God. Helps them draw their heart to God. Some folks, it draws them away. You've got to make a decision there. The books you read. 
the activities you do, the things that occupy your mind, the hobbies you pursue, do the hobbies you pursue, do they draw you to Christ? Do they help set your mind and heart toward Christ? Or do they set your heart and mind away from Christ? I think that's why church could be a good hobby. It could be a bad hobby because it could make you fill with self-righteousness. So, this is what, what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 4, verse 21 through 24. You remember I talked about there's no holy places anymore. I was wondering about, is Israel, is that not a holy place anymore? Well, uh, John chapter 4, verse 21 through 24, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. And he, and he says, you know, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, referring to the Samarian mountains, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Does that mean you can't worship in Jerusalem anymore? No, what he's saying is that by being in this place, does it cause you to worship? Does it, is it required for you to worship? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. He said this old system of rituals that we go through in the, in the tabernacle system, it's about to be done away with. There will be no longer these rituals required for you to worship God. Jesus is going to perform every ritual necessary for you to worship God. So guess what? Wearing this tie and this suit was not a ritual for me required to worship God. And I was really thinking about that this, day, this morning when I was this 95 degree heat. Uh, I think, wow, yeah, why am I wearing this again? Okay, uh, that's another subject. But that, what, we no longer have these rituals that's required. Jesus performs every ritual necessary for us to worship him. Now, he says... Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. That reminds me of John 4, verse 21 through 24. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now this is referring back to Hebrews 9, verse 13 and 14, talking about having our, our consciences cleansed, which in turn was referring back to Numbers 19, a uh, Old Testament ritual in which a red heifer was, was destroyed, the ashes of the blood was, was put on people, uh, and then the ashes of which was uh, was mixed in with water, and the water was sprinkled on people. And so he's referring to the mixture of water and blood of the red heifer that was placed on people as a ceremonial ritual that pointed to Jesus Christ, okay? And so just as there was that blood and the sprinkling of water that cleanses us. Listen, you know, I, I was thinking this morning, I was like, you know, sometimes in life, it seems like such a big deal to get your life right with God. I mean, when you look back in your life, you just see one mistake after one mistake. One sin after another sin. And it seems like, you know, I've just got this lifestyle of sin in my life. And, and the Bible says I can draw near to God. And I read this and it seems so foreign to me because it feels like I've got to do some fasting. I've got to do some serious uh, purging of my life and somehow, some way, figure out how I can draw near to God. Because I read this, but I think that's a long ways away from me. I've got to go through a process to get to that point. Listen. Here's your process. Your conscience is telling you, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. And you agree, I am a sinner. But conscience, Jesus is paid for my sin. Jesus has made me 
holy with him. Verse 14. You see that? Jesus, by a single offering, he has perfected me before God and my conscience is cleansed. God, thank you for Jesus Christ. I'm trusting in what he did for me. And before you, my conscience is clean. And I draw near. I direct my heart. I direct my heart to him. I find joy and I set my hope on who he is. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. Listen, it is not enough for you to join a church. It is not enough for you to be baptized. These things are nice and wonderful things. But what God is seeking for us is to draw near to him. That is why we have the, the emphasis of seeking God. And it seemed like such a novel thing. Oh, we're supposed to seek God. You know, all the time I thought I was just be a member of the choir. I was, I was just be a member of Sunday school. I was just be a member of the church and I was just trying to be a good person and I was just trying not to do the bad things. No, all these things are surface stuff and at the heart is seeking God. If, if we know these things about Christ and we just content ourselves with the surface level of being a good old boy, a good old woman or young woman, uh, you know, we've missed it. We're supposed to draw near to God. It's why he died for us. Ephesians 2.18, through Christ we have our access in one spirit to the Father. Romans 5.11, we exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We should not draw near lukewarmly or indifferently, even though sometimes we feel dull and lifeless. And that will happen. Do you understand that as a believer, sometimes you will feel dull and lifeless? We say, God... I'm dull and lifeless. (laughs) You just tell him that because he already knows it. And that drawing near to God means to open up your life. You share your life, the good, the bad, the ugly with the holy God. And that just drives us crazy sometimes. But it drives us to Jesus, who is the difference between us. And we say, God, I'm dull and lifeless. And there is only one hope for me, nearness to you. I come in my dull and lifeless way. Have mercy on me. Touch me with your flame. Set me on fire again. Give me life in your presence. Open my eyes to your glory and help me live again. God, I need you. Our dull and lifeless manner drives us back to the grace in which we stood to begin with. Now, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of faith. Because of the gospel, we can draw near to God with a true heart, fully in faith, with a clean conscience. Isn't it amazing? Clean conscience in faith, truly seeking God. But then also, because of the gospel, because we have this way into the presence of God, verse 19 20, because verse 21, we have a, a great priest of the house of God, we can now consider, uh, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So it's not just how we enter in. It's not just, you know, sometimes we in a Baptist church, we make a big deal as someone walked down the aisle and made a, a profession of faith and has been baptized. But listen, I think as I read in the Bible, Jesus makes a bigger deal about how you finish. About how you finish. And so, what we're looking for are disciples, not just one time, 
uh, quick in the fire type thing, but one who will continue in the fire of the grace of God, who will hold fast, hold fast the confession of our hope. What is the confession of our hope? What's the confession of hope? Is it not just the things that he had shared before in this chapter? What's the confession of our hope? Well, verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sins. I have hope in that. It is the promise of God. That's what I confess. What's, what's my confession of hope? Verse 16, that God is writing his laws in my heart and writing them on my mind. So that God is going to change me. That's my confession. You know what? It helps us to deal with our own mistakes when we realize, you know what, that's who I am. But God's going to change me. I have hope in that. That's my confession. I'm not wavering from that. God, I'm counting on you. I'm trusting you. Change me from who I am. And then, what's, what's our hope? Well, verse 14, the confession of our hope is that by one single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What's my hope? God sees me as holy. My hope is that God sees me clean. What's my hope? That God is making me clean in practice. I hold on to these things. You see, it's Christ. That's it. Our hope is Christ. And the moment we add to it, we've taken away from Christ. Now, this is going to be a little dangerous. I remember being challenged greatly about this. It's not Christ and, and Christian worship, Christian music. It's not Christ and a Christian radio. It's not Christ and our daily bread. It's not Christ and Green Pines Baptist Church. It's not Christ and my Sunday school class. It's not Christ and scripture memory. It's not Christ and the Bible. Oh, I'm getting on dangerous ground. The moment... We add to Christ. We're taken away. So some of you are wondering, well, Pastor, if you're saying that, then everybody's going to go crazy. I mean, they're going to start living a crazy lifestyle and say that God's going to forgive me. Isn't that license to do anything? That's dangerous. But as I read in Hebrews, he presents it's Christ. It's holding on to Christ. And you're just going to have to trust and the Spirit of God to write the law in their hearts. So it's not Christ in the Ten Commandments. It's not Christ in keeping the Sabbath day. It's hold on to Christ and just watch and see what Christ will do in people's lives. No, I don't think everybody's going to have a big drunken orgy now. Because the Spirit of God is in people's hearts. And He directs it. He directs it. But I've got to hold on to Christ doing that instead of some stipulations that we put on you. So we hold fast the confession of hope without wavering. What, what are we holding on to? The very fact that Jesus Christ has promised, who He has promised is faithful. He who promises faithful. Uh, we were uh, doing some mountain climbing with our uh, wall climbing with the deacons on a retreat. And we were going up this wall. And uh, one of the 
things that you do is you get this harness and you get the rope tied to your harness. It goes up to a pulley way up top, comes back down, and attaches to another person. This is what you call your belay on, belay off, right? So the idea is as you're climbing the wall, if your fingers and toes should give way, uh, well, you've got this rope to hold on to. And the thing is, is that you're holding on to the fact that this person that's holding the other end of rope can keep you uh, from falling. Now, what was really funny about this is that you know, we had these guys, and we had this uh, lady that was all maybe 112 pounds uh, on the other end of this rope holding us down. She was our anchor. Um, that was a little nerve-wracking. And so what she would do is she would a- ask one of the other deacons just to, to hold on to the back of her, her harness. And so I saw uh, one fellow, Chad, you know, he's not a, he's not a huge dude, but he was, he was getting up there, and he lost his footing, and and, and I was like, oh boy, we're going to test this thing out. Let's see what happens. Dad's going down, you know. And, and no, I looked over and the lady, she's holding on the rope and she's, there's nothing on the ground. No, not one foot on the ground. I'm like, oh no. And, but there was someone behind her holding on. And it was through that that Chad could have confidence to get back on the wall. And, and he continued up. Even though he saw that, he kept on going. Because he saw it was secure, not necessarily through this woman, but through the ones that were supporting her. See, what you've got here in this text is not just a 112-pound lady that's holding you up, but what you've got is Christ, who could not be conquered by death itself, who says to you, I will clean your conscience. I will make you right with me. I will bring you resurrection. Can you believe me? Can you hold on to that? And so the scripture says, because of Christ, because we have a great high priest, because the veil that separates us between him and God has been torn away, we can hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Verse 24. Because we have the way before God to do so with confidence, to enter it with confidence, because we have a great high priest, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but exhorting one another, and all the much more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, Fearful, we won't finish. Okay, first of all, when Jesus Christ dies on the cross, it, it allows us and it compels us to put other people in mind. We're to consider one another. I don't know if you had a goal in coming here this morning, but the scripture says that we all are to have a goal when we meet together. Some of our goals is we're here. I've met my goal, okay? I'm here, the kids are halfway dressed, um, we're good. Uh, some of you have a goal of being here on time, uh, and so you guys worked extra hard to get here. Uh, some of you had a goal to be here on time and actually look, you know, pretty good. Um, but I, I would just want to say to you that there's a more important goal. The goal is that you come here to be considerate. You're going to go somewhere to be considered. You're going to be with somebody to be considered. You're going to consider one another. What are you going to consider one another for? Well, to stir up. Something that I can do that. <laughs> I can do that. You remember that, that person in, in middle school, uh, sixth grade, who, who would always say to you, did you hear what they said to you? Are you going to let them get away with that? You were probably that person, weren't you? <laughs> you I mean, they were always provoking, always provoking a fight. All right? that, that's the negative sense uh, of this. There is a positive sense is that you're provoking them to love and do good works. So to, and what, what we mean by good works is glorify God. To love and glorify God. Now, 
Um, I, let me just make a confession. Um, I, I desire your presence at this time. I love to see your face on Sunday morning in this room at 9 o'clock, 1045. I'd love to see your face. In fact, to be honest with you, I can't help but take it personal when you don't, when you're not here. I try not to. I, I really do try not to, um, because that just shows my shallow self or something. But you know, but I, you know, I do. Um, I was like, oh man, they weren't here. What, what's the deal with them? You know, why, why do they not like us? What's going on? Uh, but listen, even though I may take it personal when you're not here, if you're choosing to not be here so that you can be in a small group to love one another, to provoke one another to good works, then that's where you need to be. And you've got my full support. After I get over a few things. <laughs> but you have my full support, all right? Is where we need to be. See, in that small group is where we can do this, where we can love, to stir one another to love, to stir one another to do good. So let me ask you, is your small group doing that? That is the fundamental, one of the fundamental purposes of your small group is that you are doing these things. And I've shared with you before that if you are just coming here and, and listening in a large group setting, I enjoy that. Thank you for being here. You know, it really, I thank you for being here. But you're not in church yet. You're not in Green Pines yet. Green Pines is a people. They are a people. They're not, it's not a place. It's not an event. They are a people. They are a community. And if you're not in that small group setting where you can get in that community, you're not a part of Green Pines. You're just watching some of a little slice of time of folks who are in Green Pines. Lisa, will you come up here? I'm going to ask Lisa. She's, uh, she's a part of a small group. And um, she's going to share just a little bit about what the small group has meant for her. All right, I'm nervous enough talking to in a group of people, but when Chris comes up this morning and says, oh, and by the way, you're going to speak in the middle of the sermon. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> My name is Lisa Best, and I am in um, a small group called Devoted Disciples, led by um, Sam Parker. And I wanted to start with a Bible verse, Matthew 18:20. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. There's something amazingly powerful about the gathering of believers in a small group. I truly believe that it's impossible to be devoted to a church without being devoted to its people. And it's impossible to be devoted to its people without having a relationship with them. Relationship only comes with fellowship. It mirrors our relationship with the Lord. To know him is to love him, but in order to know him, we must have a relationship with him. John 4.11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. On a personal note, when my brother Steve was diagnosed with cancer two years ago, it was my small group that I was able to share my heartfelt concerns, needs, and prayer requests with. They know his name. They know my sister-in-law's name. They knew the progression of his disease. These things cannot be shared in a text message or as you pass one another in a hallway. These are details that only those that spend time with you 
and those that have a desire to help and pray for you can know. If you are not yet in a small group, I strongly encourage you to jump in with both feet today. And if the relationship aspect is not enough, and you love a bargain like me and Jared, <laughs> Jared loves a bargain, the value, of a small group, the value of a small group is something to consider. Sam Parker's agricultural analogies and biblical wisdom is worth the cost of cable, about $150 a month. Dana Parker's entertaining ability to sum everything up with a NASCAR Ricky Bobby quote, also equivalent to the cost of cable, about $150 a month. Delicious breakfast leftovers from the Fidelis class every week, like Miss Champion's anything, easily worth $200 a month because you can't buy food like that. The support, encouragement, love, acceptance, and the ability to love, love one another out loud Definitely priceless. You'll receive all of this and more freely given, just as the love of Christ is freely given to us. Won't you join us today? Thank you, Lisa. In the way of bargains, let me just say here's a coupon. Okay, uh, If you go out into the desk and grab this on the desk, there's a listing of all the small groups and where they're located and times they meet. Um, George, I told you I'd call you out. George, will you stand up? This is George Shrek. He's our Sunday school director. Mike Griffin, also, he's over the education. Uh, these two individuals, if you ever have any questions, hey, I want to be a part of a small group. You, you find these two individuals. I might be able to help you out, but chances are I'll direct you to them uh, because they have a working knowledge uh, that's better than mine on this. And so we need you to be a part of a small group. Why? Because of Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 24, I'm just wondering, who is in your life that is provoking you to love people? Do you understand that's not a natural tendency? We need corrective measures to help us in this way. Who is in your life who's provoking you to glorify God? Sometimes it's a word of encouragement. Sometimes it's a word of correction. But you need to know in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some. Did you know... That neglecting others is a habit. Neglecting others is a habit. Some of you are in that habit of neglecting others. The good news is habits can change. Habits can change. So once you get in a pattern of not going and being a part of a small group, you're going to have to break some things, some, some patterns in your life to get back into a small group. You're going to have to feel it. You're going to have to feel the need of it for you to get back into that small group. But in verse 25, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I was a part of a, a triathlon last year. Um, and that was quite an experience. Um, I, th- I think I'll do it again. Um, but one of the things that occurred, you start off swimming and that kind of saps you pretty quick. Um, and then you get on a bicycle. We did about uh, 12, 13 miles on a bicycle. Um, and then the hardest part for me was after finishing the bicycle and the swimming is figuring out how do you run after that? Because um, your heart wasn't used to that and your legs just felt like jelly. Uh, and you get on there and you just start running. I'm thinking, okay, I, I made a quick decision as soon as I started is, is that, okay, I'm going to walk in some time here. Um, but then I realized, well, wait a second, I've got to wait till at least eight minutes to get my heart in rhythm. And, and so I got it in eight minutes, and after a while I was, I was, I was feeling pretty good. And, 
And uh, along the way, people were passing me. And I thought, oh, wow, man, they're already finished. But what they would say all along the way is, good form. And I was thinking, man, I'm just struggling. I was hoping, I I wasn't sure I was going to make it. Then someone says, good form. I'm like, yeah, you know, this is pretty good form, you know. Uh, And I had a little extra step going on. Uh, People saying, good job, good job. Uh, the difference in that those last the, the last three miles of running was that folks were encouraging. And one of the greatest encouragements was seeing John Boozer. Uh, he was ahead of me. Uh, he was going uh, what? Uh, he was he was he was coming back, uh, and he's 62. All right, 62. And I'm thinking if John can do this, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. All right. It helped me get through. Listen, life, life. Is very arduous. Life is very difficult. Life is harder than you will imagine. And there will be times when you will say to yourself, okay, yeah, I'm not making this. I'm going to be walking somewhere. I'm going to be checking out somewhere. And what we need when our brother is dealing with dying with cancer is someone come along and saying, we're with you. We're with you. Good faith. Keep the faith. We love you. And God loves you. And let me help you as we go through this life together. Sometimes it may be a word of correction. You know one of the things that got me was a little discouraging, honestly? Was when I was doing the bike portion. I was in my mountain bike, which I learned later you're not supposed to do in a mountain bike. Knobby tires and all this. And here's how I found out. I had ladies... 30 years older than me, passing me on the bicycle, and I'm going full speed. I think something's wrong. Something is not right. What, what's going on? And someone would say, well, you're on the wrong bicycle. You got the wrong tires. You need to change your behavior. You know what encouragement sometimes is? Is someone's telling us the truth and saying, you're going down the wrong path. You've got the wrong tools. You're depending on the wrong things. You need to set your mind elsewhere, set your heart elsewhere. You need to Direct it to the Lord and trust in Him. Why? Well, because life gets tough. And as the race gets tough. And, and notice what it says. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. What is he talking about? The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord's return is what's in question here. And so what he's saying is that every day that goes by is going to be more difficult, more arduous than the day before. Do you understand that tomorrow is going to be harder than today? Do you know that next year is going to be more difficult to trust in God than it was a year ago? Do you know that 10 years from now it's going to be harder to love? It's going to be harder to glorify God than it was 10 years ago? Why? Well, Scripture has a little word here. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, Paul says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. It's going to get worse as the time goes on, Matthew 24, Jesus said a verse way that in the last days, then they will draw you up or deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased. Listen, the love of many will grow cold. It's going to get harder to love. God and others. As the days go on, Jesus knows this. Paul knows this. And so the author of Hebrews says, as the day draws near, it's going to be harder to love God. It's going to be harder to follow Him. 
You need one another. The person who says, I don't need a church, I don't need a small group, I'm thinking they are extremely arrogant and self-reliant to say that they don't need someone else to encourage them. Well, maybe they need to join our church to encourage us. There will be a day. There will be a day in our church. If our church continues and exists in America. Where. Gathering like this is maybe very difficult to do. Um, I, I see the writing on the wall. They just passed a bullying law in school. Makes it illegal to bully. We all agree with that. Except one of the tendencies, one of the things is that you cannot do anything of hate speech towards sexual orientation, including homosexuality. Guess what that will include someday? Teaching scripture that says homosexuality is wrong. That's what that's going to include one day. Right now it's in our schools. What do you think is going to happen when those children get out in public life? It's going to be across the land where churches that teach the Bible, including that sexual immorality, whether it's uh, uh, multiple partners or sex before marriage or adultery or homosexual, when, when those who will say this is not what God expects, those of us who will say such things will become marked. Now will be the first of many things. There will be a day in time when we won't be having a woman's ministry We won't be having a men's ministry. We won't be having a senior adult ministry. We won't be having a preschool, a preschool ministry, children's ministry. We may not have all the children singing up here in a choir uh, so we can see them and applaud them and just feel good about ourselves. Um, we, We may not have a choir. There'll be days like that when we may not have a website. There'll be days like that. But you know what? All those things that have been removed from us are bells and whistles. If you're judging a church by the bells and whistles, whether or not their children are going to be up there singing, your uh, your senior ministry's got something for you, you're going on field trips and the seniors, or, or if you've got some women's ministry that you can be a part of, or if there's a men's ministry that you can join in. If, if you're joining a church, you're joining a church for the bells and whistles. Bills and whistles. Do you understand that? What we long for are the people who come to church to consider one another. I'm here. They have a small group. That's it. That's it. Do you understand that large group worship like this is a bell and a whistle? I think Bible teaching is necessary. But there will be a day and time where green pines is not green pines but someday a network of small groups meeting all throughout the place. Because it's the wise thing to do. If our church was that now, nothing but small groups, how many of you would check out and say, no, I'm looking for a few more bells and whistles. I just want to challenge you to what the heart of a church is. It's not how busy a church can be in all the programs. But it's whether or not there's a group of people 
that will encourage you to love and to do good works and that you can encourage to love and do good works. Well, I did not get to verse 26, 31. Let me just say this in a nutshell and elaborate this more next week. Some of you say, well, that's great, but I don't want it. I like my rituals. I like my bells and whistles. Christ is good, but let me add something to Christ. Let me add, let me add Christ in a sacrifice. Let me add Christ in the temple. Let me add Christ in church attendance. Let me add Christ in what I do and don't do on Sundays. Let me add these things to Christ. And, and let me just, you know, that's great, but I'm not going to depend on Christ. Scripture says, you don't depend on Christ, then you got nothing. You have nothing. It's either Christ or nothing. And, and now it's even worse because you've seen the gospel, you've seen Christ, and this love gift that's been given to you, you said, no thanks. No thanks. I've got my own thing. And so all that awaits you is that frightening verse of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Let's pray.